0: Hello, traitors and saboteurs everywhere. Welcome to another edition of Romaniacs, the continuity wing of the No Brexit movement, where we campaign tirelessly to straighten your bananas, rename your sausages, recovered offal tubes, and enact various other horrors from Boris Johnson's fevered imagination. I'm Dorian Linsky, and with me I have two of our regular co-presenters. Naomi Smith is a former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate, ex-chair of the Social Liberal Forum, and a proud Ramona. And Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk. Hello. 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 Have you recovered from the... uh, debilitating high of Romaniacs being named as one of the Observer's best podcasts of
1: 2017. Yeah, the euphoria is starting to pass now, but obviously there was a period where I was unable to speak and just sat quivering with joy (laughs) in the corner of a room. Who did we have to uh, who do we have to bribe to get that?
2: I don't know, but um, since you were all in the Observer for all the amazing work you've done, I have been approached by a Russian handler to subvert the success, <laughs> ruin the podcast, <laughs> and help secure a cliff edge Brexit in return for seventy five million dollars and safe passage to a tax haven.
0: Fair enough, good deal, good deal. <laughs> I'll go for it. Talk about that later. <laughs> uh, so maybe like winning the Mercury Prize, where our, our difficult next podcast will <laughs> alienate fans <laughs> and disappoint critics. <laughs> Also with us today, we have an extremely special guest, Heidi Alexander, Labour MP for Lewisham East. She's the first ever MP to appear on Romaniacs.
3: That's one down, 649 to go. You're you're
0: representing British democracy. Thank you, I'm (laughs) delighted to be here. (laughs) She's a former Shadow Health Secretary and Labour Whip. In 2016, she resigned from the Shadow Cabinet following Jeremy Corbyn's sacking of Hillary Benn. She's now one of Labour's most vocal backbench Remainers, tabling an amendment to halt Article 50. What's more, she's the best thing to come out of Swindon 6 XTC.
4: <laughs> wow. Hi,
0: Heidi, welcome.
3: Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: <laughs> uh, is, is it wise for a sitting MP to appear on a show called Romaniacs? Will you be considered talking Britain down?
3: Well, I, I don't think so, to be honest. Um, uh, I've listened to a couple of your episodes and um, I think it's the it's place where people want to be if they're wanting informed good fun interesting debate about what's going on in the country at the moment so i'm delighted to be here
4: extra
1: rubles for you uh,
3: (laughs) not our words the words of heidi alexander mp (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) um, how sort of committed a remainer are you on a scale from sort of misgivings about brexit to full european superstate?
3: well i think um you know, I voted to remain. I voted against triggering Article 50. Um, I voted for the amendment to the Queen's Speech earlier in the summer, which was about keeping us in the single market and customs union, not just for some sort of transition period, which Theresa May um, has finally come round to talking about, but permanently, because I think that's the way we protect our economy and protect our future prosperity. So I'm pretty far along the scale. I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you represent a Remain constituency um, on behalf of a party that's committed to leaving the EU in one way or another. Is this something your constituents sort of bring up?
3: So during the general election, surprisingly, it came up some of the time in some parts of my constituency. So I represent Lewisham East. It ranges from places like Blackheath in South East London through to the border of Bromley. You know, I am stopped at Lewisham Station by people saying I'm distraught about what Theresa May is doing to the country. I have people in tears um, on the doorstep about Brexit. Um, I've had people in tears in my advice surgeries... Um, but overall, I would say the surprise for me at the general election was the extent to which politics was conducted as usual. So I was stood in Hustings mm. meetings and people were saying, what are you going to do to increase the recycling rate in Lewisham? Not saying that isn't an important issue. Um, but when it comes to you know the future of jobs, trade, investment, our place mm. in the world, um, what was surprising to me was the extent to which... Politics as usual sort of seems to be going on. And if you listen to something like Prime Minister's Questions today, um, you could have come away from that thinking, well, hang on a minute, where are the questions about leaving the European Union? Um, and where are the huge, vast array of difficult questions that you could be mm-hmm. asking Theresa May about what the plan is around trade, um, the plan for immigration? And it just sort of strikes me that there are so many questions out there that the government aren't actually coming under any pressure on at the moment. So I see it as the responsibility in me and people like me to keep that pressure up.
0: We'll be talking to Heidi in more detail later. We'll also be looking at the massive controversy over whether Remain voters really are better educated than Leave voters. Labour MP Barry Shearman said as much on the BBC Sunday Politics and the howls of outrage could be heard in Brussels. But was he right? Before we get started, here's Naomi with a few gentle reminders.
2: If you're one of those unpatriotic students or academics in what the mail refers to as our Remain Universities, then you might want to advertise your sympathies with a Remain University sweatshirt. They're available in stylish EU blue with EU yellow type <laughs> and the possibly inaccurate Latin motto of Remain University, Testiculus ad Brexitum. The shirts were the idea of listener Chris Etches. Thanks very much, Chris. And they're now available to buy at at romaniacs.myshopify.com or via romaniacs.com. And of course, if you're new to the show, why not subscribe via Apple Podcasts, leave us a nice star rating and a review too. Every little helps. Thanks,
0: Naomi. Newstime. First up, the con- <laughs> news Newstime. First up is the continuing row about the Brexit Department's refusal to release their secret studies about the impact of Brexit on 58 separate sectors of the economy. Seema Malhotra, a Labour MP on the Brexit committee, had asked for the studies to be released, and this week DexU gave their refusal. On the grounds, irony of irony, of freedom of information. There is a strong public interest in policymaking associated with our exit from the EU being of the highest quality and conducted in a safe space, said spoke snowflake from DexU. <laughs> <laughs> Disclosure would set a precedent that would inhibit free and frank discussion in the future. The government did release a list of the 58 sectors, including everything from tourism to telecoms, and they amount to 90% of the economy. They just wouldn't tell us what would happen to those sectors. Naomi, given that Brexit's exploded every other norm of politics, is it absurd to cling to the idea that the civil service is too fragile to be exposed to public scrutiny like this?
2: forget its fragility, apparently it's about to swell by another 8,000 staff. We've heard that ministers want to grow the civil service by that number, so with those numbers of people involved, it's only a matter of time before someone leaks it anyway. But, you know, even if they don't leak it, they may still be forced to publish um, either because of Seema Malotra's appeals to the Information Commissioner being upheld or Labour winning the Opposition Day motion uh, they put down calling for the impact assessments to be provided to the Committee on Exiting the EU. But, you know, if nothing else Else, this just absolutely smacks of them having something to hide because come on I think let's face it it's not going to be good news, is it? For the government, I think it's going to be bad news on two fronts. Firstly, the impact on jobs and therefore public sentiment about the government's Brexit strategy. So for instance, the Bank of England told us yesterday that the financial services sector looks set to lose 75,000 jobs. Um, that's a pretty middle ranging figure between you know uh, what other uh, city commentators say about the number of jobs at risk. But secondly, it's the impact on tax revenue. 75,000 doesn't actually sound like that many jobs for a country of 60 million plus but in terms of tax receipts into the government coffers we're really looking at billions and that's just one sector you know there are nearly 60 others and with a budget this month and calls from ministers like Sajid Javid to increase government spending on housing and infrastructure I'm assuming Philip Hammond read these impact assessments wearing brown trousers. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there is, I mean, there's a chance because that, that Labour Opposition Day stuff is going on as we speak and this doesn't come out until Friday morning, that all of this would have been undone by the time anyone hears it. And actually, you know, Labour would have won it. And off we go. It's not impossible, actually. I mean, you know, people like uh, sort of Dominic Greaves, who we keep on mentioning on this podcast in a sort of come on, Dominic, any day now you're going to actually do the things that you keep on saying you're going to do. He's come out against it. So we should, you know, be willing to vote with Labour. Again, you know, as we've said many times before, usually when it comes down to it, that doesn't take place. And and that sort of more moderate wing of the Tory party doesn't show up on the day. But it's perfectly possible this will have come out by now. There is also Julian Morn's uh, legal challenge which could also see them released. So there's this sort of three-prong attack, one of which will be over by the time anyone hears this, but the other two will still be live even if it fails.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's it's quite interesting that the Labour opposition and Keir Starmer is having to use some sort of archaic 19th-century parliamentary procedure to try and actually hold the government to account on this and get these documents published, um, because what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is just a real disrespect for democracy. So we've had votes on things like universal credit... Um, Um, You know, winning those votes 299-0, but then the government not doing anything about it at all because they're saying it's not a binding vote. And of Mm. course, you know, you can have binding votes in passing legislation and new acts of parliament. But what we've managed to do is phrase this motion in such a way as if it is passed and if we get the numbers through the division lobbies tonight, then it's very, very difficult for the government not to publish them now. A lot of the rules of the game seem to be sort of um, uh, forgotten at the moment. Theresa May just seems to think she can do what she wants to do. So let's actually see if it if we do get the numbers and it is passed, what then happens? And I think the huge irony in all of this is that, you know, people were told that they were getting back control. Mm. And what we're seeing is them getting a cover up. Mm. And there does it does get to the stage where people are going to say, well... When do we get common sense on this? Can't we actually understand what the impacts are in all these different areas of the economy? And you are, as Naomi says, you are just left wondering, Mm. you know, what are they hiding here? Mm. Well, this
0: one stinks to high heaven, but I wonder, is there any value to that argument, if we take it at face value, that civil servants shouldn't deliberate in public and that this is somehow going to be sort of bad for the process if everything is allowed out there?
3: Well, I think these are... These are um, unprecedented times, aren't they? I mean, we haven't dealt with anything like this as a country in my adult lifetime. And I think that people want to know the information and the facts in order to be able to form judgments on things. And part of this going forward is about as new facts emerge and fresh facts Mm -hmm. emerge, people look at things with a fresh pair of eyes, don't they? And they start to say, well, hang on a minute, all of these things that we were told back in, you know, 2016 prior to the referendum, um, they're not actually turning out to be true. And so I see all of this as these are, you know, the times that we're living in are absolutely unprecedented. And I just think the argument for transparency and us being able to understand what the impacts are, as opposed to sort of forecasts and things that people find, you know, difficult to grapple with when things are many years off well this is the work that's being done now let let MPs let the Brexit committee interrogate that and then make a judgment um, themselves about mm. you know
2: how how we can move forward with it. Because we got into this situation because so many Leave voters felt like decisions that affected their lives were being made by a group of elites behind closed doors with no recourse to them whatsoever and yet that's exactly what the government's doing now by trying to suppress the publication of these impact assessments. So I, I agree with you. I think it will backfire.
1: There is definitely, I mean, look, there is obviously an argument for civil servants being able to do certain stuff in private. Of course, that's the case. If you remember, like, a few years back, we had the same sort of argument over risk assessments on the sort of rejambling of the NHS along private lines. And there the same sort of argument was raised there. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you do a, like, if you take a risk assessment one of the things of a risk assessment is you're not saying this is going to happen. You're saying these are the potential things which could go wrong, which we need to evaluate. And, you know, if you were to publish all of that, that is obviously a lot of tabloid headlines of going, this is absolutely definitely going to happen and your grand's going to die tomorrow. So, you know, in the, in the NHS, of course, there's arguments for that. We are now at a point where qualitatively and quantitatively, the importance of this policy is so absolutely sort of overwhelming in the way that Britain will operate for the next generation that the public are entitled to the government's mm. information on what it will entail for the country now it's not like they're just it's not just the brexit vote it's on different kinds of doing brexit whether you you know whether you, the single market or what effect that would have on your fintech or what that would have in your cultural industries as well as the usual stuff that we talk about with sort of customs and manufactured goods and all of that now that assessment should be there for people to come to an informed view and for the government to resist it is you know morally indefensible for david davis of all people who has this you know up until this moment really quite proud history of campaigning for government transparency is hypocritical in the extreme And, and, and you know i mean basically intolerable to watch
3: yeah, I mean, I think there are 58 sectors on that list, aren't there? Mm. You just take one of those and work through one example. I met with a pharmaceutical company recently that produces an injector pen, um, used by 50,000 people in the UK to treat rheumatoid arthritis. Um, the supply chain in manufacturing to make that product, where the formula is all stored in Ludwigshaven, you've got part of the injector pen being made in Oxford, part of it being made in Ireland, it all coming together and being assembled in Kent. Um, they've got huge questions about, well, how will... How will we produce this? What will the um, will we be stopped at the border with all of these different parts coming in? Will then our are- our product be deemed to be a UK product in terms of rules of origin with respect mm. to future trade agreements. That's even before you get on talking about how medicines are actually going to be licensed. Mm. That medicine has already got a license mm. in the UK. So this is just like one tiny example of one thing. And actually, I think it's something that people would never ever have thought about um, before the Brexit vote. But it demonstrates how this issue affects every single area of our lives. And I just don't think that... Um, there's enough understanding and comprehension of that. And so I think the release of these papers is really important because it helps people um, to understand what the implications are.
1: And it's actually quite dangerous, I think, for for the government, especially because lots of the findings that we find now is that people are most open to being convinced in areas that they haven't heard about yet. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about customs, they kind of feel like they've heard that argument that goes. If you start bringing up stuff like the NHS and the impact of Brexit on it, people are actually more open to those arguments. They haven't yet reached a position on it. It seems when you look at sort of focus groups, of people are open to ideas around complexity. They're not dead to that. They will. And, you know, soft leave voters will be open to those arguments. So, right, when we start unpeeling and drilling down into the detail of what it entails, that's potentially a very vulnerable position for the government to be in. And I suggest that it's their fear over that kind of eventuality that has led them to block the publication. Our second story of the week is a scoop from The Guardian that UKIP may have used staff paid for
0: by the far right website Breitbart in the run up to the EU referendum, opening the party up to accusations of accepting indirect foreign den- Nations. And just before we came on the show, it was announced the Electoral Commission was investigating where uh, Aaron Banks's money came from. Two whistleblowers inside UKIP alerted the Electoral Commission that the party was making unusual arrangements with Breitbart. The Met police were alerted but took no further action. Meanwhile, Labour MP Ben Bradshaw has called for an inquiry into the use of dark money and possible foreign interference in the referendum. Nigel Farage, of course, has often praised Breitbart and its UK subsidiary for supporting Brexit, saying that Leave would not have won without the news website's supportive voice. And this comes against the backdrop of the unfolding scandal about Russian interference in the US presidential election, constant disquiet about the manipulation of public opinion through fake social media accounts, and growing evidence that Nigel Farage, WikiLeaks, Leave.eu and the Trump campaign are closely associated in complex, disturbing ways. Ian, what's the sort of hard evidence so far that the American far right did interfere with the referendum? There isn't
1: much. I mean, look, we we are not, there's no smoking gun. There's no hard evidence, I think, on any of this stuff at the moment. What there is, is there's lots of webs of people. And it's the most extraordinary mixes of people, you know, going from Julian Assange over to Donald Trump to Steve Bannon at Breitbart over to Nigel Farage. And sort of figures that you would, I mean, you don't necessarily associate Julian Assange with being this kind of right wing cabal figure. And yet there he is mixed up in the web of it. I think, A, that's politically fascinating, that there is just this sort of stretching wing across, you know, f- from America to Britain, but other countries as well, that have this almost Trotskyist need to just kick down the system and operating along quite nativist sort of lines. And of course, you know, by the way, Putin is in that web as well, probably right right at the top. What there isn't is a real sense that there is a financial connection with how all of this is operating or that there is some kind of organizational structure behind it. Now, there's an awful lot of innuendo I see, including from some journalists that I really quite admire, who, you know, I think really on the right side of this issue, where it's just the, you know, these guys know each other, they've had a meeting, so therefore we can conclude something. And you think, Well, people talk, <laughs> you know, I mean, especially people that have similar political objectives. I mean, we're doing it now. People talk. And I don't think that just because, you know, for instance, I don't think that Nigel Farage going into the ecuadorian embassy is some great smoking gun of the fact that there's a grand conspiracy to overthrow british democracy i just don't we need more stuff i do accept however that even without the smoking gun there's a very strong argument that says look russia has been doing this all over the world it was doing it in the french election it was doing it in the american election it it would be surprising if they hadn't had any involvement at all in the Brexit referendum. But I do think the people on my side of the debate have to be quite restrained in how we operate around this, because there isn't really any solid evidence to suggest that we should get excited just yet.
2: So, I mean, we know that Farage turned up at Trump rallies, that there sort of seem to be quite good mates. Was it more than that? We just don't know. Some of the stuff that I think we do know, though, is that there are these couple of companies, there's Aggregate IQ and Cambridge Analytica and their affiliates and they shared software and that several different leave groups spent millions on them. Um, we know that Aggregate IQ and Cambridge Analytica were both part-owned by Robert Mercer, a major donor to the Trump to Trump and to the Tea Party. Um, and at various times, Cambridge Analytica and both Vote Leave and Leave.eu have claimed that Cambridge Analytica helped a lot, quotes, with both campaigns, but they have also subsequently denied that. And there's no mention of it in their spending returns as gifts in kind. So a formal Electoral Commission investigation is underway. Um, they will get to the bottom of it and decide whether there was any help. Were Cambridge Analytica, vote Leave, and Leave.eu all lying when they claimed Cambridge Analytica had a role? Or were they lying when they said that Cambridge Analytica didn't have a role? Uh, or was there some other version of, re- version of events? We really don't know. Um, so I'm looking forward to the, to the Commission getting to the bottom of it. Just to, to Ian's earlier point, I'm not entirely sure about the, the, the sort of the disparateness of all of these groups. I think sometimes it can be quite unhelpful to label these groups as blight, Breitbart, UKIP, Conservative. If you talk to these people and go to their parties and dinners, which I don't, but I know people who do, um, you'll have Nigel Farage at one end of the room, Jacob Reed Smog at the other, Jesus and everyone's on first name <laughs> <terms. laughs> What a party. Sounds like a nightmare oh, come right. true. This thought experiment isn't working. But they're all on first name terms. I <laughs> literally and... shuddered. That was yeah. <laughs> I was just myself in the middle of the table just
0: my head spinning round.
2: but you realise pretty quickly that this is all the same crowd with the same views just operating under different banners they're all the same people there aren't actually many of them they're just very well connected and very well funded and so a lot of people on the Eurosceptic right of the Conservative Party and UKIP and Breitbart and fellow traveller groups like Brexit Central Guido Falk's blog and the think tanks working out of 55 Tufton Street are all best mates they have near identical politics and frequently swap notes and help each other out, both formally and informally, but they're not so much working together as they are the same group of people just wearing different hats.
1: Um, that, I mean, that's surely true, that, that they all share the same politics. That, that, that must be true. But th- there is also splits among them. If you look at the Daniel Hanan guys, even the Legatum guys who are, do- frankly, dodgy as fuck, but nevertheless, they are actually distinct from these guys And that, you know, they're, they're not really the nativist, high-border kind of guys. They're more like the, let's unilaterally get rid of all the tariffs, you know, sod the farmers, sod the working class lot. So I don't, I'm. You're. You're. You're surely right that they do. I'm just so wary of us going into the place. For instance, that Nigel Farage is going into saying, "Look at all these remainers working together." Barnier's met this one who's working with an academic, and that kind of more conspiratorial mindset. Um, I did. Obviously, there are laws against uh, you
0: know foreign donations, UK elections. But a lot of the stuff that's sort of happening now, um, there's. There's. Uh, I don't want to use the word collusion, but there there is a there's cross border collaboration um, happening here, and a lot of. Uh, A lot of stuff that's, you know, a kind of spider's web of
3: connections.
0: Is the law, sort of, is British election law lagging behind that? Are there lots of forms of sort of what we might call foreign interference that are just not covered yet?
3: I find it very difficult to answer that question, to be honest. A, I'm not an expert on our electoral law. Um... I think I'm inclined to agree with Ian about this, to be honest. I mean, it makes my head spin just listening to what Naomi's been talking about there. And it's not just this investigation that's been launched this week about Aaron Banks and the possibility of donations in kind from a foreign donor when they were working in the UKIP office in the run-up to the referendum. You've, we've also got this stuff to do with the donations to the DUP and the advertisements mm-hmm. that were running not in Northern Ireland but yeah. in England and yeah. the Electoral Commissioner looking yeah. into that as well. And then you've got the allegations um, that uh, you know Ben Bradshaw is talking about in the round to do with Russian influence. I mean, I do think... You've got to find a way of thoroughly investigating this stuff. And if there's wrongdoing, people need to be brought to justice on it. The one wider point I'd make about it all, I was thinking about this though, is that, you know, as disgusting and disgraceful as that Nigel Farage poster was in the referendum, it resonated. With some people, didn't it? Unfortunately. And there's a real question for mainstream politicians about what we are doing to take on those arguments um, directly around immigration. Because, you know, all of the things we should have been discussing before the referendum, customs union barely mentioned, you know, the way in which you sign a free trade agreement, you know, all of these things, it, it was all drowned out by, frankly, noise about immigrants, asylum seekers. Um, and so I think the question for us, yes, yeah, 60% of people in the UK have got Facebook accounts. Undoubtedly, social media um, would have had some influence but it was tapping into something that exists out there. And I hear it on the doorstep. You know, we talk about my constituency being a strongly remained part of South East London, which it is probably 65% of people who voted voted to remain. You know, immigration does come up on the doorstep quite a lot. And I've got to have those arguments out with people. And I'm having those arguments in a way now that I wasn't having five or six years ago, when perhaps, you know, you'd find a way to move on to the next subject and the next conversation. But I think it's really important to be saying, well, hang on a minute, you think you've got pressure upon the A&E and housing, um, but have you thought about the fact that we've got an ageing population and that, you know, when you walk into hospital, what you see is not a queue of migrants, but you actually see frail, vulnerable older people... One in four of whom have dementia in a hospital bed at the moment. Have you thought about, you know, the the reasons why we don't have enough homes for people to buy or rent at an affordable level? And actually, I've been quite, I've been a lot more vehement about the way in which I'm having those di- discussions and debates now. Interestingly, during the referendum, was I out in those parts of my constituency that would have voted Leave more strongly than the Remain parts? No, I wasn't because the Remain campaign had a turnout strategy in parts of London where we went and, you know, knocked on the doors of people that were all definitely going to be voting already. Mm. And so I think that there are some really serious issues here that we need to have out, and we're still not doing it at the moment.
0: Well, it's like American critics of Trump say, resist the allure of the magic bullet that's going to see kind of Trump marched out of the White House mm. in handcuffs. You know, they're saying, like, great, let Robert Miller do his thing, but still concentrate, if you're a Democrat, mm. on your appeal to the voters and how you get to the core of, of, of kind of Trump's appeal. And I think it's the same here. I'm quite excited by this stuff. But, you know, you never know where it's going. Even like Watergate early on, mm. people had no idea whether it was going to turn into something or not. And I find this here. It's like, well, I could I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that Aaron Banks was just like funneling money from, from the Russians, for example. Mm. But you can't sort of bank on that you can't bank on it going like we found crooked behavior and therefore the result is overturned Mm -hmm. and you don't have to deal with any of these concerns. It's always like
1: keeping your eye on both balls. Yeah, exactly. Even if we find out that Russia was behind absolutely everything, we still have to address the root causes of why this took place, which is, yes, stuff around immigration, but also stuff around just people feeling left behind, you know, departed and not being represented in the political system. That's Mm -hmm. all there. Before we turn off this one, can we give a quick shout out to Open Democracy, the website, which Mm -hmm. has done loads of the work on the dark money and it's just one of those websites people don't talk about, you know, that much in the mainstream sort of conversation. They are doing that kind of old fashioned diligent follow-the-money investigative journalism, and that's where a lot of this stuff came out, and they deserve full credit for it. And that, sadly, is the news. Don't blame
0: us. We just report (laughs) it. As you've heard, we have a special guest with us, Heidi Alexander, Labour MP for Lewisham East and tireless critic of the government's kamikaze approach to Brexit. She sponsored an amendment to halt Article 50 back in January. She's part of a cross-party grouping demanding that Parliament be given a veto over Britain leaving the EEA in the form of a Commons vote. In 2016, she quit Jeremy Corbyn's front bench, later saying, I hated being a member of Jeremy's shadow cabinet because it was entirely dysfunctional. Earlier this year, she criticised Labour's shadow International Trade Secretary, Barry Gardner, saying his position on Brexit was fundamentally wrong and based on a list of concerns that had come straight out of Tory central office, sovereignty, immigration and the ECGA.
3: Yeah, listening to that, you wouldn't think I'm by instinct and naturally a team player. <laughs> I, I actually am.
0: <laughs> I did wonder, like, that, you know, that, that last summer... How much of sort of what happened then was a kind of, uh, I'm not saying it, it wasn't sort of thought through as well, but was a kind of a very strong sort of gut reaction to the referendum? You know, how much of that was just sort of manifesting this enormous sort of disappointment and stress? and that And that was the sort of channel it found.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been quite open about this in the past and I wrote an article for The Guardian last August where I sort of set out the reasons why I decided to resign from the Shadow Cabinet. The tipping point, I suppose, was the morning after the referendum when I'd sat in my office and listened to Jeremy give an interview on the BBC where he talked about triggering Article 50 immediately. And, you know, seven hours before that, I'd been sat at my desk preparing to go and do a BBC interview on the radio when I'd been thinking through well hang on a minute, how do we actually trigger Article 50? Do you need an Act of Parliament to trigger Article 50? Even at that point there had been talk about possible legal challenges Um, and so I, you know, that morning we had a Shadow Cabinet meeting and I just really strongly felt that on the basis of my experience over the 10 months previously we Needed somebody to bring the party together, actually persuade the electorate of some really difficult issues going forward. And I felt at that point in time that there were potentially better people than Jeremy to be doing it. And I thought, well, I, you know, when your family knows how you feel about things, and there were dysfunctional elements of the shadow cabinet in the first year. And I won't go over them all now (laughs) because it's quite painful. But, you know, there comes a point as a politician where you've You ask yourself, well, when my friends and family know how I really feel about stuff, am I prepared to go on television and lie? Um, And I wasn't. And so I took a really difficult decision and I took that decision in in good faith. I've got to say, you know, all of this stuff about how it was some sort of pre-planned coup is absolute nonsense. I think that was demonstrated by the fact for about four or five weeks after the resignations happened nobody really knew where it was all going and that was partly because there wasn't a candidate, there wasn't a plan in place and so this notion that you know it was a coup just really angers me still because you know it was something that I did think long and hard about before I did but the the tipping point was the morning after the referendum. So
0: how have things improved then? I mean I suppose it's
3: yeah, I mean, I think um, I think Keir Starmer's been doing a really good job over the last uh, year or so, um, as evidenced actually by this opposition day debate that we've got today's, you know, actually thought about how we might extract these documents from the government, which look into the impact of, of Brexit. And I think that what has happened over the last year to 18 months is that, A lot of us in Parliament are becoming more and more educated on these issues. I mean, I've spoken to Ian about it in the past that I sort of find myself reading quite technical papers about WTO schedules and, you know, all manner of things in order to try and understand how there might be a way through this. And I think Kia has taken it, Step by step, we had in the summer, you know, his clarification of policy, if you like, around staying in the single market and customs union for a transition period, which I think is is very positive. But I think it does beg the question well, you know, what's the end state that we're working towards? Hence the work I'm doing with Stephen Kinnock about saying, look, MPs need to have a direct vote on whether we should pull the UK out of the European Economic Area. And so there's this whole debate about Article 127. I don't know whether you've discussed it previously on the show, which is Article 127 of the European Economic Area Agreement suggests that any country which wants to come out of that, con- that agreement needs to give 12 months written notice. And I see it as quite similar, actually, to the Article 50 of the European Union Treaty, um, in as much as you're withdrawing rights from individuals and businesses. And I think that there needs to be a direct vote in Parliament on that. And as the EU Withdrawal Bill is currently written... I think it gives a backdoor authorisation to the government to withdraw us from the European Economic Area, a.k.a. the single market, because what that bill does is say, well, we're going to repeal the European Economic Area Act of 1993 and we're also going to give ministers the power uh, with regard to international obligations that may the country may have. So sort of tidy these things up, given what the bill does to the domestic statute book, and I don't think any MPs actually appreciate, <laughs> many MPs appreciate, I should say, that there is this backdoor authorisation to leaving the single market contained within the EU withdrawal bill. So we've got lots of discussions going on about things like the Henry VIII powers, the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, what happens to powers given to the devolved assemblies and the devolved parliament up in Scotland. But actually, I think this issue about the single market and the European economic area is a really crucial issue. Um, And it's one that, you know, we we will have a debate on next Monday in the House of Commons.
0: Because Labour's had this sort of dilemma that that, uh, many constituencies voted to leave, yet the majority of the Labour electorate voted to remain. And they Sort of played that well in the election, and it kind of explains how they could have attracted leave and remain voters Mm. and and kind of outperform expectations. But obviously, for a sort of Labour member and Romaniac, obviously I would like to see it sort of just go, We are the, we sort of resist this. We are the, the, you know, the party of of Remain. And if you want to stay in the EU, sort of vote for us. Is that just, I mean, electorally, do you think that's just sort of untenable to sort of just come out and say that?
3: Yeah, I do. Actually, I think that certainly at the moment, I think the most important thing that the Labour Party should be doing at the moment is focusing on, you know, protecting our economy going forward, not least for the reasons that Naomi was talking about earlier to do with the public finances. Um, And I see the you know The best way of doing that is staying in the single market and the customs union. Now, the easiest way to stay in the single market and customs union is actually to stay in the EU. But given the current political makeup of the House of Commons and given the extent to which the public don't really, at the moment, seem to be moving on particularly with regard to their views on this, perhaps a little bit. Um, I think that I've got a responsibility to try and shape what the government is doing. And if I come out and I keep jumping up and down and just saying, you've just got to stop it, you've just got to stop it, I reduce my ability to shape what is happening. We'll handle so, that side of things. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think the Labour Party's, you know, Kia said... Keeping all options on the table um, beyond the transition. And I think there's a there's a really, really important debate to be had in the country about what the single market is. What does being like Norway actually mean? One of the things that we never really spoke about in the referendum, which I just baffles me really, is you know, you know, Norway makes cohesion payments to support less advanced, poorer regions of the European Union. So that people in Those parts of the EU have a better standard of living, their economy develops, and they buy more of the stuff that we're producing in the UK. So everyone sort of seems to think that the EU has all been a sort of one-way flow of Polish plumbers coming into the UK and what they actually don't appreciate is that trade between the UK and Poland in the 10 years between 2003 and 2013 has virtually uh, tripled or quadrupled i can't remember the exact figures but i actually think when we talk about paying into the EU budget we need to understand what that actually means people need to understand sort of what structures are in place for countries like norway and let's have a grown up discussion about this stuff Um, let's actually talk about what the EFTA court is compared to the European Court of Justice let's talk about what the equivalent of the European Commission is for countries like Norway and Iceland and let's actually talk about how we can work with the countries closest to us to create the sort of country that we want to live want to live in and so that's why I'm really focused at the moment on on single market and customs union
2: issues. I mean, I totally understand the sort of political expediency of what you've just suggested and and, and the importance of Labour doing you know, a good job in opposition at, at sort of trying to get the facts out there and, and, and all the rest of it. But I do, my worry for Labour is that they could perhaps be storing up problems for the future. We've got an incredibly fragile, hung parliament government that could collapse at any time. and. The, the sort of the soft Brexit line that Keir is putting forwards, it's not really an option at the moment. You know, it's sort of hard Brexit or nothing in terms of what we're hearing coming out of the negotiations or lack of them. So I suppose my my worry is that you could inherit a really bad situation that would potentially sort of force you into into a position where you're going to have to make that decision about whether you're hard Brexit or whether actually, no, let's call a halt on the whole thing at the moment because...
3: Yeah, or, it's really not or there could be a general election at some point where a political party says, one of the main political parties says, we believe that the UK should remain part of the single market and stay in the European economic area. And if that means having... the debate with the public about immigration, which goes something along the lines of, well, hang on a minute, fewer EU migrants means fewer people paying tax, fewer people spending money in our shops. Fewer Fewer homes being built. Fewer fewer homes being built, fewer gaps in our labour market being plugged um, because of our ageing population. Frankly, fewer care assistants coming over to look after people like my gran um, when she passed away a few Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, Actually, let's talk about this stuff because I say that public opinion doesn't appear to be shifting that quickly I have seen polling however that says when people are presented with hard choices about well if it's da- if it's fewer jobs less investment more complicated trade or tougher controls on immigration that when you when you present the choice to people people choose prosperity and opportunities mm. and actually mm. say you know look if this is a choice Um, this is what I want and at the moment the biggest lie in all of this is this idea that you have your cake and eat it and you Mm. just basically say uh, we want everything and if you shout more loudly in the negotiations you'll get your way and the real world doesn't work
1: like that, does it? Because, I mean, I, I I like your options with stuff. I mean, I've sort of felt from the beginning, you know, staying in the single markets, staying in the customs union, a sort of compromised Brexit, a moderate Brexit seems the best way of reflecting mm-hmm. the way that what was ultimately a pretty close vote sort of, you know, ended up, especially when you had whole nations like Scotland and Northern Ireland that didn't vote for it. Um, but the polling in the last sort of couple of weeks... Uh, uh, the polling of Remainers seems, seems so sort of solidifying of Remain support away from sort of single market compromise stuff and mm-hmm. back towards, no, let's just overturn the whole thing and go backwards, which partly, I think, explains why so many people, especially in our side of the debate, sort of feel like, oh, things are shifting and we don't see that much shifting in the country. I think it may be because there's a lot of shiftage within Remain mm. towards a more sort of a, a harder position. Do you feel that that makes the sort of stuff that you're trying to do with Stephen Koenig a little bit tougher, more difficult or... Do you sort of feel that reflected in the way that you've gone about sort of campaigns for single market and customs union?
3: Yeah, again, I mean, I, I think one of the dangers in this whole debate is, you know, I know that this polling is done. Let's be honest, polling can get it really badly wrong as well. <laughs> there's, there's been no um, obvious the, historical example, the the, no, the, so. the the point I would make about this is that you know, all of us sat around this table in this studio today, we think about this a lot of the time. Um, I think, I, you know, I think about it most hours of most days when I'm awake. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of slightly ashamed to admit that. But at the end of the day, I am a Member of Parliament and I think people would expect me to be thinking about it a lot. You speak to my mum and the number of times that something in relation to the EU actually flits into her radar is very infrequently and I think that the vast majority of the British public aren't thinking about this a lot and one of the things that it always you know I've never really forgotten about the referendum is that yes there were a minority of people in the UK that were absolutely desperate to have the referendum there were a load of other people that didn't really care but they, we asked people a question and they had to make their minds up on the basis of the information that was presented to them at the time. And they made a judgment on that day um, back in June 2016. Now, you know, that's not to say that this is the most burning issue for them going forward. Um, and as, you know, this fresh information and fresh facts comes to light, I think people are going to be thinking, well, hang on a minute, how, how do we do this in a... a a sensible way, a way that protects our economy, a straightforward way. You know, we've got all of these problems, whether it's in the NHS or the education system at the moment um, that we're not tackling because we are recruiting thousands of civil servants to work out what the new customs regime is going to be like or to work out Mm. what the new mechanism is for approving cancer drugs when actually what we need to be doing is sorting out a long-term strategy for elderly care in this country and so I think that people you know, when we look at the great panoply of different issues that are out there, at some point, you know, I do wonder whether people are going to turn around and say, mm. "God, is, is is this already worth it?" At which point, I think it's right that the Labour Party keeps different options on the table. The the sort of the the compromise, sort of middle of the road position, I guess, at the moment, is one of remaining in the single market and customs union, and I feel that. I can be explicit with every single one of my voters in Lewisham East, those that voted Leave and voted Remain. I was completely straightforward with them on all of my literature, never shied away from an argument on the doorstep if people wanted to have it. But that's something that I think, you know, staying in the single market in Customs Union, we can we can take that argument out to the country. And if Kia's willing to make it for the transition period, there does come a, you know pretty obvious question which is well why not for the longer term as well and
0: and in your current position you're really able to kind of devote a lot of time and energy to you know to this issue and really kind of champion it Um, would you, you were doing you know you were doing a great job sort of pressing Jeremy Hunt when you were in health. would you rejoin the shadow cabinet if asked, is that I don't think
3: think that's a a likely scenario to be honest (laughs) Um, (laughs) let's put it that way uh, I mean, I think, to be fair to Jeremy, you know, the Labour Party did better in the general election than people expected. And he had a lot of people in his shadow cabinet that worked really, really hard. And, you know, the the point after the election where there was this whole debate about, oh, is Jeremy going to invite um, other figures back in to join the shadow cabinet? Um, you know, actually, I thought, well, to be fair to the people that served in the shadow cabinet during the general election campaign... Um, you know perhaps you know i think it is fair that they get to keep their jobs um i mean i i actually like the freedom that being on the back benches gives me on this issue and the flexibility to educate myself because you know there is i think a you'd be mistaken to think that MPs understand all of this stuff and in order to form your own opinions on it you do. I think you do need to speak to a wide range of people. You need to read broadly, um, and 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 actually, I quite enjoy the you know the opportunities that being on the backbench actually gives me to do that. And you don't have the same pressures as you do. If you're on the front bench and you're having to constantly respond to every news story um, that is running on that particular day, you know, meet all the different stakeholders that exist in whatever particular area. You know, that's a really sort of full-on, uh, a full-on role that shadow cabinet members perform. And so, you know, people can make contributions in different ways.
0: And there's a question finally that we that we sort of ask everyone because we're trying to be more uh, practical and optimistic and sunlit uplands, um, which is that. Uh, is, is is trying to move people on from the uh, from the impotent fury stage, um, and what is your sort of? I mean, you've said what all the, all the things that you're doing. What do you think is kind of a a, a sort of pr- the best sort of course of action for just kind of uh, for remainers for listeners to the podcast that that, that feels like. Would that be, be sort of affecting public opinion or what, what feels, what can make them feel useful?
3: Well, I had this really interesting debate with one of my local groups called Lewisham East for Europe recently sat in a pub um, in Lewisham. And they said to me, what can we do to make a difference? And I said, do you know what? I think we should do some cross party door knocking just on this issue, let's go to the areas where, you know, there was a high propensity to vote leave, even in a place like Lewisham East, uh, you know, a largely Remain constituency. And let's actually start talking to people about some of these difficult issues and just ask them, you know, how they voted in the referendum. Would they be minded to vote again? Because we need to, in the same way, again, would they change their vote? and then ask them what the key issues are because in order to find a way forward as a country us guys who feel we were you know very very strongly remain and some of us define that what define ourselves that way now we do need to understand what was motivating people who who voted leave and 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 some of the time when you challenge people's assumptions i'm not saying all the time uh, but some of the time people turn around and say oh, do you know what, you've actually made me think about that slightly differently, um, particularly on the issue of immigration. Mm. And, I, you know, I think that we, if we could find a way of doing that, I think that would be a good use of our
2: time.
0: Yeah, good advice. Shall we uh, have a quick commercial break where we try to sell you something?
2: <laughs> this week's episode of Romaniacs is supported by Virgin Mogul and trains to spaceship entrepreneur Sir Richard Branson, specifically his new autobiography, Finding My Virginity, which is available now on audiobook from Penguin Random House Audio. I wonder where he left it. What's it like? (laughs) Our producer, Andrew Harrison, has been listening.
4: Well, it's essentially part two of Branson's life after losing my virginity. It's from 1999 onwards, so it's Virgin Mobile, Virgin Media, Virgin Active, the vexed question of Virgin Trains and Virgin Galactic. Uh, he meets Nelson Mandela and Al Gore, and he fights with Donald Trump. Um, you know his house on Necker Island burns down. It is the world of Richard Branson, as you know it, and it's it's quite sort of affecting. And you know, his writing style is it's it's very transparent and unadorned. It's it, it's quite a, it's episodic snapshots rather than a grand arcing narrative. The thing that really stands out is that. This is the guy who was doing disruption before Uber. This is the guy who was looking at broken businesses or businesses that don't really deliver. and thinking, how can we do this better from the point of view of, of customer service and actually treating you, the customer, like a human being? So it, it is actually a genuinely illuminating read and certainly uh, makes you think differently about uh, the, the, the ease with which he sets up businesses. You just seems to set them up on a whim and, and, and kind of say to the heart of what is making a bad business a bad one and how to make it into a good one. If you want to invest in any podcast, we are available. To give us a shout. So, Richard, if you're out there, we. we are a remain hero so uh, come and show us some remain love so that's um finding my virginity the new autobiography by sir richard branson out now from penguin random house audio and available to buy on audible Uh, it's the unabridged version read by steve west and there is an abridged version read by sir richard himself out later in the year so when we launch romaniacs atlantic airlines and romaniacs trains you'll know where we got all the ideas
0: Finally, are Leave voters really less educated than Remainers? Labour MP Barry Shearman had Tory MPs gasping in horror on Sunday politics last weekend when he said, when you look at the people who voted Remain, most of them were the better educated people in our society. Nearly all the university towns voted Remain. Tory MP Stuart Andrew immediately accused him of snobbery and the usual suspects such as Ian Dale and Quentin Letts said that Shearman had claimed Leave voters were thick, which he did not say. Unfortunately, for all the plain speaking voices from the University of Life, like son of the soil Quentin Letts, it turns out that, strictly speaking, Shearman was right. As Peter Kellner, ex president of YouGov, told today, people who left school at 15 or 16 voted 2 1 for Brexit, people with up to A levels or equivalent were equally split, and graduates voted 2 to 1 to remain. Education remains the best predictor of how you voted in the referendum. But is this something, Naomi, that, that it just doesn't sound good if you say it out loud?
2: Yes. I mean, it's complicated. On the one hand, must we be expected to respect people who are just fundamentally completely wrong? No, that would be terrible. On the other hand, from a campaigning perspective, telling Leave voters that they're dumb is a big mistake. And if anything, it's a trap set by the Brexiteers who want to frame Remainers as elitists. We know that Brexit will hit the poorest hardest, but yet we're framed as the ones that are are being the elitist. So it's true, there does appear to be this correlation between levels of education and how you voted. Um, Although I'm sure I read that the strongest correlation was actually your views around the death penalty and bringing back corporal punishment in schools. Uh, The more you favoured it, the more likely you were to vote leave. But of course, just because someone is uneducated or undereducated doesn't mean they're stupid. And conversely, there are plenty of Brexiteers wandering around the media and Westminster with degrees who went to university because they came from wealthy backgrounds and not because they were bright sparks. I think what this issue fails to discuss is age. Uh, older people and the oldest voters are less likely to have been to university than younger voters. What population of OAPs actually have degrees? Well, I think it is interesting that we're not allowed to talk about the perils of undereducation anymore. You know, I'm a good social liberal. One of my heroes is William Beveridge, who in the 1940s talked about ignorance as being one of the five evils of society alongside squalor, want idleness and disease. But it seems we can't and back to my earlier point, we probably shouldn't because it really doesn't work in winning people over to our cause. Um,
0: uh, Heidi, obviously, this is like Barry Sheerman did not mean to be insulting. He was saying something which is a, a statistical truth, mm. and he didn't use the words sort of stupid. Um, but it becomes another kind of uh, sort of weapon in this sort of culture war that sort of sprung up, which is a, quite apart from all the stuff about you know customs unions and tariffs mm. and stuff. Um, as an MP, do you have to sort of particularly in this sort of you know social media world? Do you sort of have to vet, you know, what you're about to say? Do you have to be to be sort of careful that even something that seems to be a statement of fact or something well-intentioned doesn't become a mini-controversy that can be used, you know, in these culture wars? Is that just a hazard of the job now?
3: Yeah, I think it probably is a hazard of the job, to be honest. I always think quite carefully about what I'm going to say before I say it, um, but everyone can always use words that just end up conveying a meaning to somebody else that you didn't really intend, to be honest. I mean, listening to this story, you know, again, I sort of thought of my my mum, and she doesn't have any qualifications. She left school at the age of 15. My dad has got, like, the equivalent of two O-levels. Um, they're not thick because mm, they no, don't have, exactly. you know, they're completely capable of listening to the news and forming their own judgments on stuff. I think the point that Naomi makes about age is really interesting and I hadn't thought about that one as well in terms of if you're older, are you less likely to have a degree qualification? One of the other things, though, that I've read in the last year that I think is fascinating about the, the sort of the correlation between an individual's different characteristics and their propensity to have either voted leave or remain was a piece of research which I saw which looked at the the channels through which people received their news in the days and weeks preceding the referendum and whether someone had, for example, spoken to someone who was from a town other than the place that they were born. And there's a very high correlation between if you, in the days preceding the referendum, if you'd spoken to someone who wasn't from the town where you were born, you were much more likely uh, to vote Remain. Um, And so there's a really, there's something really interesting about the way in which uh you know country is organised. You know, I went to a comprehensive school in Swindon, first person in my family to go to university. Um I'm described by Nigel Farage as being part of the Metropolitan elite, but compared to him, I mean I haven't got a patch on him really. Um and yet just because I hold views which are strongly pro European, then you know I'm I'm put on one side of this culture war <laughs> that mm. you that mm. you talk about. Mm. Um and so, you know, these these are Difficult issues. I left Swindon, came to London because I wanted a good job. um, And I thought the best jobs were in London. Um, And so, you know, there's the way our economy is structured, where different types of jobs are, where people move to, their experience of the places where they live. You know, you look around London, fantastic city to live in. You look in other parts of the country, people don't feel the same way about their hometown and you know a lot of people have left that new people have come people have seen change you know I could go on forever mm. about this but I think it's a sort of what Brexit was was actually yep. sort of a reflection we're, of so many things going on in the country
2: we're fighting a culture war because the people were asking an economic question um, you know, voters were asked if they wanted to leave or remain in the EU, and they answered in terms of how they felt about it after years of austerity government, after decades of failed macroeconomic policy. They felt left behind, poorer, disenfranchised. I mean, not all, obviously, you know, wealthy Brexiteers um, are clearly just xenophobes or worse. Uh, but um, part of the case remaining in the EU was an economic one. But the EU is also the greatest peace project of all time, and we absolutely failed, and I think are still failing, to connect to the emotional decision-maker in all of us. It-
0: Ian, just to wrap things up, this is a bit of a theme of yours, is that the, the language, this kind of self-sabotaging language, even if it's unintentional, as in this case, that sometimes comes out of Remainside that kind of plays to the...
1: Yeah, I don't. I really don't feel he didn't. I mean, better educated rather than more educated or something, I suppose, might be a little bit. But I don't, I don't really feel he did anything wrong. It mostly just made me think of the, this screeching outrage on right and left at... Uh, anything of any interest that anyone expresses on any topic and so as soon as you know and then of course afterwards people go oh it's such a shame you know mps just sound like such robots now and and you know you think like, well, of course mate because if they say anything with even a bat squeak of personality to it you get absolutely savaged out there and the left and the right i'd say are in exactly the same place now slightly different topics you know usually with the left it's on issues around sort of gender and race and these like that. And on the right, it's typically just, you know, about basically exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about now. And it is just designed to shut you up and make you terrified of expressing any opinion of any sort of substance or colour whatsoever. And this is just that. This is, you know, the, the safe space of the right. And there'll be plenty of opportunities You see the safe spaces of the left going on for the, for the week ahead. It's part of that that perpetual knee-jerk outrage that we experience almost every second of every day, especially if you're foolish enough to spend any time on Twitter or <laughs> Facebook. Um, and, you know, there'll be plenty more of it to come. And it well, of to <laughs> where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and own, can, of course, you can find Romaniacs, wonderful platforms where... Indeed. You can enjoy it. our top-quality <laughs>
0: social media content. <laughs>
1: And there's your show.
0: Many thanks to our special guest, Heidi Alexander. Thanks for being our first MP. Thank you. After I you the deluge. I hope I
3: pass the test. <laughs> Thank you
2: very much.
0: <laughs> and thanks as ever to Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Naomi, uh, I believe you have this week's reason to be cheerful.
2: Yes, uh, basically, regret is on the rise. YouGov polling um, shows the proportion of people saying that, in hindsight, the UK voting to leave the EU was a bad idea has risen to its highest level since the referendum. Uh, This coincided with a sharp drop in the public's perception of how well Brexit negotiations are progressing. In April, the government had a net score of plus one for its handling of these talks, and this has joyously plummeted to a minus 43 at the start of October.
0: Holy moly. We're going to play out with the sound of Demon is a Monster, our theme tune by Shop, and the traditional roll call of Patreon backers. If you want to shout out yourself, plus amazing Romaniacs mugs, bags and t-shirts, then visit our Patreon page via Romaniacs.com and pledge us whatever you like. We'll be very grateful. Here's the traditional sign-off this week in Greek from friend of the show, Alex Andreou. Bravo, And it's
2: thanks from me to Thomas Whitehead, Nat Slater, Miranda Doyle, Alex Scott, Rory Martin, Simon Fathers, Greg Fenby-Taylor, Jake Staines, Rob Thorley, and Alistair Campbell. Surely not.
3: Really?
0: And thanks to Helen Dolby, Daniel, Simon Lewis, Leo Critchley, Luke, Finton, Ben Hunt, Kirsten Hughes, James Hawks, and Karen
1: Tiego. And it's thank you from me uh, to Michael O'Connor, Ben Stock, Ian Aberdeen. Patrick Harrison, Manu Roy, Mark H Smith. Uh, we will get Mark e. Smith eventually. Graham Lewis, Ken Baker, <laughs> if possibly the Ken Baker, Maureen Ashley, and Monica Slater. If we haven't read out your name yet, don't worry. There's always next week.
0: Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Romaniacs was produced by me, Matt Hall, and Andrew Harrison, and it's a Podmasters production.